Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 278, and today's guest is Rick Venzura, CEO of Freight Farms. I was excited to interview Rick for the VentureFizz podcast, as he has a very unique background in terms of scaling great retail and restaurant brands like Borders, Panera Bread, and Wahlburgers, which was a startup at the time when he joined as CEO. Sure, in the case of Wahlburgers, it is very helpful when the owners are celebrities and you have an A&E reality show to support the company, but regardless, you still need to have the right vision, product, and service, and even more importantly, you need to have the ability to execute, which is where so many companies fail. Rick is now tackling a new but related industry, and that is in the world of ag tech as CEO of Freight Farms. It is a company that I've been following and have admired since I first heard about them from their time at Mass Challenge and Techstars. It's such a cool concept, hydroponic container farms, where you can grow food anytime and anywhere. Freight Farms recently announced a $17.5 million Series B3 round of funding to support the growth of their business. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like advice on scaling companies in the food industry, Rick's professional background throughout his early career, including his time as executive vice president and co-COO at Panera Bread, how he sought out Wahlburgers and became the company's first CEO and helped it grow to a $100 million brand, plus details on working with the Wahlberg family and the A&E show, all the information on freight farms in terms of how their container farms work, plus details on the company's business model, which includes hardware, software, and services, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, the VentureFizz Weekly Digest email is the must-subscribe email to keep you connected to the tech scene. You'll receive lots of information on companies, advice for your career, and other industry-related information. Sign up at VentureFizz.com register. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Rick. Rick, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you because we're going to talk about a lot here. We've got uh, a great story of Freight Farms, which is a company that I've admired since I think I originally heard about them, uh, either Techstars or Mass Challenge. Uh, so it's just a great company in, in the vertical farming industry, which is certainly important for uh, our planet. And you've got a great history and, and career building uh, great companies and they're, they're brands that people are going to recognize. So I'm excited to really dig deep into those. But before we get into uh, the details on your background, I want to talk about scaling companies in an industry that I haven't really dug deep into much throughout these podcast interviews, and that's the food industry. So you're scaling companies in fast casual, ag tech. So what advice would you have for entrepreneurs that are trying to you know, tackle the, the process of building a company in one of those industries? Yeah, well, in uh, uh, our business and in um, restaurants, which are fairly similar in retail, it's really about the uh, ability to scale a single unit into multiple units and drive good economics. So it really all starts with figuring out what are the, what we would call four wall economics, which are if it's a restaurant within the four walls of the restaurant, if it's in one of our farms, it's within the four uh, walls of the farm. What is the concept that you're trying to drive? What's the economic model around that concept? And how can you make that uh, the best, most defensible concept and economic model that you possibly can? So in food industry, what makes you different? Are you really all about the food? Are you all about the experience? Are you really about the brand positioning? Are you just about great locations or is it some combination of the above? 
And then how can you operate that in a way where you can drive a high enough top line and manage your bottom line, your expenses, so you can produce a good bottom line. In our case, it's really about how do you continue to expand the range of crops you can grow, um, drive higher yields for those crops, create specific characteristics for those crops that uh, can drive a premium, understand your market. And then once you've nailed that single unit, um, it's then just about how do you replicate that and what do you need um, to support replicating that model as many times as you can successfully. So that's really about nailing standard operating procedures, um, getting as efficient an overhead structure as you can to support everything you need to do to make sure those operators are successful. And then just uh, every day thinking about executing hard, well, and and always putting the customer first, because if you don't win with the customer, nothing else matters in the long run. That is definitely the truth. Customer is always first. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's rewind the clock. So talk about your background. So where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? Yeah. So I grew up in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. So uh, uh, I'd say grew up kind of rough and ready as Albuquerque <laughs> uh, goes, but I loved, uh, I love sports. Um, always kind of a science geek, always kind of a history geek. And of course, loved the mountains while I was out there. And uh, then I went to uh, college at Santa Clara in the Bay Area. Um, loved it out there. Worked out there as a banker. Thought I'd spend my life out there. Uh, came out east to uh, get my MBA at Harvard. And then I wound up um, meeting my wife, who uh, exported me to Michigan, where she was working for GM. And uh, that really started what I would consider the heart of my career which was in uh, multi-unit consumer. So I started with uh, Borders Group um, via Kmart, which back in the day, major book chain along with Barnes and Noble. So I ran a couple of large divisions. Yeah, you helped launch the, like the borders.com, which I mean- I did. I and remember I that well. Uh, many interesting dot-com stories, including meeting with Jeff Bezos and his team who wanted us to do distribution for them and- Okay. He kept saying we're just the little guys, you know, we just want our little share of the market. And we got done with the meeting where they essentially offered us equity to help them. And we're like, why, why, why do we want a little piece of equity to put these guys on the map? And uh, our little piece of equity would have wound up being worth 50 billion bucks. So I guess that wasn't the greatest decision of my career. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, that was a, uh, that's a, a great story. I love the industry. Um, and then uh, I, I went from Borders to be co-CEO of Panera, which is where I got involved in food and then went from there to be uh, founding CEO of uh, Wahlburgers, the celebrity burger chain. And uh, in the course of that, which, again, tremendous fun, have a ton of respect for the Wahlberg family. But, um, you know, at, toward the end of that. Um, my uh, daughter, very woke middle daughter among woke kids, essentially said, hey, dad, way to live the capitalist dream. But when are you going to do something good for the planet? Mm -hmm. And uh, there's this Native American proverb that says um, we don't um, uh, inherit the earth from our ancestors. We borrow it from our children. And that really has hit home with me. And so when three years ago, 
the co-founders, John Friedman and Brad McNamara, approached me about joining Freight Farms. Um, perfect mission at the perfect time. Yeah. And I, I want to dig deeper into some of these companies that you help scale, because I think they're obviously great brands that people recognize. So Panera Bread, right? So that is a uh, restaurant that <laughs> I've spent many, many hours in because um, A, it's great food. Um, the mac and cheese is fantastic. Uh, but it's also like a place where I would go do business plans for venture fits. I think I still I actually still do. It's like my retreat and I'll spend a whole day there eating and drinking their coffee, which is fantastic. So at what point was the business? And then, you know, you grew it to astronomic proportions with TV campaigns and you were responsible for technology and the whole evolution of this vast casual experience. Yep. Yeah. So Panera was a, um, uh, obviously a well-established brand when I got there, I think there were around a thousand stores, um, uh, and by the way, tremendous respect for Ron Shake, who really was the mastermind, along with Scott Davis, the chief concept officer behind Panera, where they were a good example of every day waking up about concept differentiation and how do you create a better solution for the customer and how do you think about every day part as an individual opportunity to win and just creating the best concept that wins across those day parts. But anyway, when I got there, um, uh, really had been a brand built on word of mouth. Um, and, and um, you know, I'd say guerrilla marketing tactics. And there was a real debate on whether national marketing would make sense for Panera. Um, actually, it's one of the great examples of the benefit of a franchise system because Ron and I were um, in uh, our Springfield franchisees location and we were debating um, whether we should do national marketing. I was um, a fan of it, but I understood his reluctance. And then um, uh, the head of the franchise pulled us over to a monitor and said, hey, I want to show you something. And he showed this ad that they had been running locally that we knew nothing about. They created on their own. They shouldn't have done it, violated <laughs> the franchise agreement. But uh, Ron and I both said, Damn, that's pretty good. And they said, do you think this denigrates the brand running this? And we're like, no, that's a credit to the brand. They said, guess how much we spent on this? Like, I don't know. I guess it's since it's you, it's low. They said seven grand. That's how much that ad cost us. <laughs> think about what you could do with your budget. Right. So that set us on the course to doing national advertising. And then we launched um, the loyalty program. Um, and uh, it, Obviously, when you look at Panera today, um, marketing's a big part of what they do. So, yeah, it was fun being there at really the start of, of Panera being a, um, a um, you know, a uh, full-scale national marketer. Yeah, they're definitely one of the brands that I think has nailed the loyalty experience, as well as the, when you arrive, the kiosk experience of ordering. Like, I think a lot of restaurants have struggled with that at, at Panera. It was just, it's just seamless and easy. All right, Wahlburgers. So how did you get involved with building Wahlburgers? How did you meet Paul Wahlberg and start to build? I mean, cause for people that don't know, because I don't think I really understood uh, until I was doing research for this podcast, you know, Paul had his own restaurant, but then Wahlburgers was an extension of that, if I'm correct. Yep, yep. So, um, so uh just before I joined Wahlburgers, uh, Ron 
again, the founder, Panera, he had stepped away from the business, decided grass wasn't greener, came back. And I had joined Panera really with an intention to ultimately run Panera. That was part of part of why I was hired was for succession planning. And when Ron came back, I um, just felt like he was going to be there forever. And and the opportunity to run the business was going to be closed. So I was talking with a local developer here in Hingham, Mass., which is where I live, and said, geez, you know, I'd really want to run a business, but um, I don't see that happening at Panera. And he said, well, you ought to go look at what the Wahlbergs are doing because they're in the middle of building this hamburger um, joint. And they'd like to scale it, but they don't have anybody who has experience doing that. And I'd been at Almanove, which was Paul's original restaurant, Mediterranean, fabulous. I knew Paul was a great chef. And it really got my mind turning because I didn't know of, and I still don't know of any other example where with an immediate family, you have world-class culinary skills tied uh, into a, you know, world-class celebrity brand. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, that was pretty intriguing. Um, I went to the restaurant while I was in construction, walked in the door and, um, said, Hey, could you give this card to Paul? And I left my, uh, Panera business card <laughs> and that didn't get a response. So anyway, I posted on Facebook, um, Panera COO would like to talk. And that was enough to get me an invitation to the grand opening for the original Wahlburgers where I briefly met Mark. Um, and then I interviewed um, with him at a dinner in New York. That was one of the best <laughs> dinners I ever had. The value of him being a, a uh, celebrity with a lot of chef focus. And um, then met with Donnie on the set of Blue Blood, surrounded by 200 women <laughs> um, <laughs> for my interview with him and knew it was going to be totally different experience from then. And then it was just kind of a rocket ship from there between the show, the uh, the restaurants growing, putting retail beef in, in grocery stores. So it was a, a ton of fun. I love this story because I just assumed some executive search firm was like, okay, we're going to get someone from these select restaurants, Panera being one of them. You got the call from the headhunter. You're like, sure, I'll talk to the Wahlbergs. Uh, but no, you were the one that actually sought out this opportunity and you heard it through you know, a mutual connection that was uh, in Hingham. That's f phenomenal. I love hearing stuff like that. How did the show come to fruition? Was that like, like how did that even happen? <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, uh, it actually came about with uh, uh, producer Rasha Drakovich, um, uh, his company, 44 Blue, and he had done a lot of reality shows. And uh, Duck Dynasty was a hit at the time. And he said, geez, I think, um, you know, the time is right for an upbeat family show. Um and uh, I think this would be great. So Mark said, well, yeah, why don't you go meet the team, see what you think? And he kicked the tires and still thought the show was a good idea. So um, so they green lit it. Um, we actually uh, we shot the pilot. We pitched it to the History Channel um, who didn't buy it, but they're part of the A&E network. And and interestingly, given the focus on the family brand, um, 
the woman who really was the mastermind behind making Duck Dynasty a big brand uh, was totally sold on this being a great concept and being a great, great pairing with Duck Dynasty. So I'd say when I was at Panera, never did I think my my real career takeoff point was going to be getting a show paired with Duck Dynasty. But uh, um, yeah, it was a fabulous way to launch the show and it lasted 10 seasons. So uh, not bad. Did you make appearances in the show? I, I, I'm like, I've caught episodes, but. Um, I did. I would say I, I was deliberately not a feature piece. I mean, they really wanted to focus on it being a family business. So what, what did you learn from this experience? Cause you, from what I gathered, you took a single unit and grew it to a hundred million dollar brand, which even if you have celebrities involved, you still have to have a great product and, and operations that scale. So what were the biggest lessons learned of, you know, scaling Wahlburgers? Yeah. So, I mean, I would say what I learned, um, Wahlburgers reinforced some things. I, uh, I would say I already knew, meaning if you're going to scale, um, particularly something like um, a restaurant, but it's portable across, again, any multi-unit thing, culture and replicability is so um, key to making it successful and really getting the model right that you want to just build a concentration in one geographic area and then expand from there, really understanding your concept, nailing it, making sure you have the enough people that uh, have the experience in an existing restaurant that can you can move to a new restaurant and make it work. Um, so very controlled growth. Um, as a practical matter, in a celebrity brand, that's just not the way it's going to work. Opportunity is going to crop up literally around the world. And every now and then you're going to be faced with an opportunity that's sort of too good not to take. And then there's also the practical reality of Mark, who, uh, you know, he was incredibly involved, very willing to um, put in his time. We were in contact several times a week. He, he would be willing to make any contact um i wanted um but the price obviously was for a guy who makes 20 million dollars a movie he's got to see that this is going to be scalable and worth his time so it was this constant ba um uh balancing act between sort of textbook grow slowly methodically um and then you know fan the flame in concentric circles to um, as a celebrity brand, having a lot of pressure to take advantage of the brand value, grow, grow fast and, um, and uh, um, you know, try and capitalize on the moment in time, the show, the fact that the brothers at the time were sort of at peak, peak fame. And, uh, you know, I think, I think we balanced um, fairly well against those and, and, you know, the brand's still prospering, but Frankly, you know, there were there were some that that uh, we opened that in hindsight, you know, under a slow controlled growth strategy, you wouldn't have opened. Yeah. All right. So you already gave a glimpse as to why or why you decided to join Freight Farms, which is a great story. So what what is Freight Farms for people that are not familiar with the company? Yeah. So we um, 
grow uh, produce in um, shipping containers. They're completely customized, optimized uh, for growth. So they're farms that leverage LEDs to provide the, the light and the growing power. And then the farms themselves are very, very highly insulated for a very controlled climate, um, have an HVAC system and a lot of internal airflow and other um, components that allow you to very consistently grow about two and a half acres worth of crops in that eight by 40 foot um, shipping container. And then we also have some very powerful software that allows you to operate the farm, a lot of it with no intervention on your part. We just create recipes that are different combinations of CO2 levels, temperature, humidity, nutrient uh, distribution, light intensities that are optimized for whatever crop um, you want to grow. And then um, the people who farm just need to worry about planting the seedlings, transplant in uh, the cultivation area, do the harvesting. So, um, you know, our, our whole mission is around democratizing access to food. So we've tried to keep the prices of the farms as reasonable as possible, try and make it as simple to use, again, by designing nutrients that are specifically oriented toward maximizing productivity of the farm by developing software that lets you run the farm with, uh, you know, as ease of operation as possible, including being mobile enabled. So you could literally be running your farm in Omaha from, from uh, you know, London, um, if you wanted. And we've spent the last decade just continuing to refine that technology to improve the efficiency of the farm, improve the yields, improve the range of crops you can grow, and improve the ability to uh, customize certain characteristics, whether it's a spicier, spicy arugula, or grow, you know, harder to grow crops, exotic flowers, wasabi arugula, um, and, uh, you know, we've now grown to where we're in 49 U.S. states, 38 countries. We have the largest uh, network of IoT-connected commercial farms in the world. So that just gives us a learning lab where every day we can take advantage of the data we're collecting and the collective experience of about a thousand farmers around the world to um, get better and, and also grow sustainably. We are hydroponic, so we um, are a perfect conserver of soil. We're 100 times more land efficient than traditional agriculture. Um, we're 99% more water efficient because we have a closed loop recirculating system. So we just take the moisture out of the air through our HVAC unit. We recirculate water in the farm. So in a humid environment, you can actually be water positive which is another way of saying your tanks fill up every day instead of, instead of uh, draining. So in the presence of clean energy, we, we believe we're the most sustainable form of uh, farming in human history, largely because of the last key advantage, which is um, minimal transportation miles. You know, 95% of lettuce in the U S is grown in Salinas or Yuma. So it's, if you're in like us on the East Coast, it's traveling thousands of miles, so subject to waste, uh, loss of nutritional value, taste, texture, flavor. Um, our average transportation miles, because you can put the container 
right at the point of consumption is um, about um, 13 hours. So it's just much fresher, much more nutritious, and obviously has a much better impact on the environment given you're eliminating all of the carbon impacts of, of that transportation. I didn't know this until uh, a few episodes ago, I interviewed the co-founder and CEO of a company called Divert, and he shared all the, the amount of waste from retail, you know, the supermarkets is just astronomical. I mean, it, it is just crazy how much waste is produced, which I guess hindsight, when you think about it, it makes sense. It's just not good. <laughs> it's not good yep. for anything. Uh, so building out freight farms is a, um, it's one of these ideas that makes me love what I do to talk to, you know, CEOs of great companies that were founded by just these innovative minds to think of diff something differently. So like, how did it get started? Like John and Brad, how'd they come up with this idea to begin with? Yeah. So I, I think they met in, in 2010 um, and both of them had an interest in trying to resolve issues around food deserts particularly in, in Boston, which is where they met. So their original concept was um, to try and do that through rooftop gardens. Um, well, it doesn't take uh, a lot of time to realize that trying to feed a lot of people through rooftop gardens isn't particularly scalable or um, efficient. So, um, you know, one day John was kind of wandering around and seeing these shipping containers just sitting around and had this aha moment given he has a background of building bioreactors at Merck of geez that's a there are a lot of these it's a standard um, it's a standard size uh, you should be able to put um, LEDs it was well known you could grow with LEDs at that point and create a farm out of a shipping container so um, they just kind of um, uh, you know, hand built uh, the first couple, um, tried them out, saw you could grow, wasn't particularly efficient with those early models, and it wasn't particularly stable, but then um, just kept um, banging away at it, raised some early funding to advance the technology, both hardware and software. And then around, um, you know, 2018 or so, realized that this model of trying to use repurposed shipping containers just had a logical limit. It's not designed to grow food. They're not all alike because they're used, so they're in different states. So if you really wanted to create this perfectly replicable standard operating procedure oriented, highly efficient environment, you needed to work with used containers that were specifically designed to grow crops. So. Um, starting in 2019, transition to the greenery um, model, which was based on a lot of proprietary technology around adapting a shipping container to have optimal airflow, optimal HVAC, um, uh, software that can take advantage of the precision, et cetera. And uh, we're now on our fourth generation of the greenery. So, um, you know, fortunately, we just raised around that let us continue to keep driving both the uh, technology, but also all of our learnings from a business perspective to, and not for profit, by the way, 30% of our business is not for profit. 
where we're used for a bunch of things other than obviously driving profit, like engaging a specific community, education, um, local food distribution, et cetera. Yeah, when I and I would encourage anyone that's listening to this podcast to go on the Freight Farms website because there's a lot of great videos just to see it in action. And I think that's when you really develop an appreciation for A, how amazing it is, and B, how complex it is. And that's why I'm just like thinking this and building it and making it what it is is just you you need just exceptionally minded people to think differently. Uh and they I mean it's just it's really cool. Like I was watching uh, some of the local farmers that were using it and then like Auburn University and, and they have two of, and it's, so the business model is the greenery, right? So the greenery S you buy that, that's the actual freight farm, the the container. And then it's a, uh, like a license model after that, right? Per user. So that's, there's an ongoing recurring revenue model with it too. Right. Right. So our three, uh, our three revenue streams are the farm and the MSRP on that's $149,000. Um, the software is $200 a month and um, consumables run about $350 a month. So the operating costs actually are not um, not all that high. It's It really comes down to labor inputs and, and energy. But yeah, those are our three revenue streams, consumables, software, and then the farm revenue. Now you mentioned you recently closed the new round of funding, so obviously exciting times ahead. What's what what are the plans for the future? Yep. So we, uh, at our core, um, we're about modular technology and scalable technology. So without going into a ton of detail, we're doing a lot of work in 2023 on both um, scaling up and scaling down from that current S model. And then just investing a lot in continuing to drive the performance of of the S. And again, that's both work um, in technology to improve yields and uh, crop range, crop, crop characteristics. But it's also working on developing a lot more of the customer service business support to make it feel as much franchise like as possible for the folks operating the farms. And then, um, you know, the last thing is, is really focusing on expanding the f- software to um, audiences outside of just ourselves. So one of our co-leads of this round did extensive due diligence and, and we were gratified, not surprised to find their firm said, yeah, we're the best software in the industry. When we've previewed it with other um, players in the industry, um, it's a fairly common reaction. Could you do something like that for us? So we're really focused on, again, making that um, a standalone product in in 2023. And and, uh, more than anything, though, as will always be the case, uh, the majority of our investments will go in just making our existing products the best they can possibly be and the customer success model the best it can be because as i said initially in the long run our success ultimately comes down to our customers success so what are some of the more unique spots where there's a freight farm um well we're in uh five continents um everywhere but uh frustratingly not in south america um, and, uh, and not in Antarctica, but, uh, 
uh, we're in some pretty extreme um, climates in the Yukon. In fact, we we uh, um, fairly regularly get ping there about um, operating the farm without internet because their military installations under underground. Uh, we're in uh, uh, Mauritius and in Cairo. Um, in uh, in Africa, we're in you know farther northern reaches of of Europe. We're in Tasmania. Um, so, uh, and again, we're in 49 U.S. states. So if you go anywhere uh, in the country, but uh, the Dakotas, you'll find us. So we've talked about different companies that you've built. What have been the biggest lessons learned of building out a company like Freight Farms? Because it is different than what you were doing before. Yeah, well, the biggest um, uh, difference between this and yeah, probably any other um, company I've been in is this is uh, true pioneering. Um, and I would say for most of my career and still as much as I can at freight farms, I try not to reinvent the wheel because I say, look, there's probably an analog somewhere that you can go look at, at least as a starting point for how you ought to address a business problem. But um you know, we're, we can't learn from a future that we're literally creating. So um, a lot of it is about make your best assumptions um, of how the world's going to play out and then just be prepared to iterate. And I would also say to some extent, run like hell. You know, we know that this technology um, is evolving rapidly. We need to evolve rapidly. And, you know, I've never... I've never been at a company that would go through this many fundamental product transitions as quickly as we have, both hardware and software. I mean, our products are radically, not a little, but radically different um, across all three, hardware, software, and consumables than when I joined the company, and that was less than three years ago. Um, And so you're managing the variables of um, having to invent stuff that have hasn't existed before dealing with um, very rapid technical development where you're still trying to make sure that technology is sound and working well while hitting the speed you need. And then we're just hyper growth. We'll be 13 times uh, as large this year as we were in 2019. So, so I would say I'm definitely learning from trying to balance um, all of those variables at once because I'm used to you always face one of them, uh, often face two of them. I've never faced three of hyper growth, um, hyper speed technology and just being totally pioneering. So you don't have analogs you can work off of. So you need to be adaptable, I guess, is the core point. And you need uh, I'm a huge believer in you always need to have a plan so you can understand the assumptions that you're making and be as precise as possible on when you're off plan, why and what needs to change. But then you can't ever be completely committed to that plan because just the environment is too dynamic to think you can predict it to any great extent into the future. All right. So for entrepreneurs that are building a company in the ag tech industry, what advice would you have for raising capital? Pick a different time. <laughs> True. For any, yeah. any well, raising capital, well, any industry. The, uh, I, I would say that, I mean, the punchline right now is very clear. A year ago, 
Um, if you had a good story, it, it was very easy to raise money. Um, there, there will always be some level of interest in the story because you got to be able to paint a picture that's worth somebody believing in and investing in. But there's much more demand about proof points, um, a very clear business model, and a very clear path to profitability along with product market fit. So um, the story alone won't get you by, other than maybe, again, if it's a seed round, sure, maybe an A round. But when you're at the point where we are, if you're trying to raise a lot of money, um, uh, be prepared to answer pretty detailed questions around where is the product market fit? What is the market size? What are your proof points that that's not just a made up number? Mm-hmm. And what's your business model? And again, where are the proof points that that's not just a made up business model? So um, much, much more demanding. And then the the other corresponding piece is you got to be reasonable about valuation, you know, companies today are going to get a different valuation than they would a year ago. And you can either cry about it and not raise money, or you can accept it and, and have a shot at raising money. Yeah. That's great feedback for many levels, especially the made up piece, which I always, you know, found interesting where the projections slide of the pitch deck course it's a hockey stick growth right the revenue is going to go just hockey stick it's just like all right or the market size there's all these things that are just hypotheticals and that you're not going to get away with that in this market so um all right three apps you can't live without three apps i can't live without um even though i'm a tech guy i i will give you um I guess the counterintuitive answer, which is as much as possible, um, I try to live in a world of personal connection and and uh, try and make technology not as integral in my life as it is with others. And maybe that's a reflection of my age. I mean, obviously, this call is a good example of I couldn't live without Zoom. I mean, uh, I'm heavily into social media, but a lot of that is because that's part of the job and uh, the marketing side. So a lot of ground covers that. But uh, um, I don't know. I'd rather encourage people on uh, go outside, take a walk, take a deep breath, enjoy the environment, um, pick up the phone, get on a plane, go see somebody. Um and again, maybe that's just because I spend too much time with with uh, my kids where everybody is heads down with a phone. A, a real life example today, like my uh, my daughter's a freshman in college and she's going to be coming home for winter break. And I'm like, OK, that summer job you had, I'm sure they'll hire you back. Right. She's like, yeah, I emailed them. I haven't heard back. I'm like, have you called them? And she was like, what? <laughs> People have phone numbers that you can call? I'm like, yep do that (laughs) yeah well we'll we'll be sitting at the dinner table and i'll see two of the kids actually texting each other i'm like you're at the same table right yeah anyway (laughs) all right podcast book recommendation um 
Well, my uh, to be sort of random, but it always sticks with me. Uh, Fairmont's Enigma. It's an older book, um, but the book is about Andrew Wiles, who uh, Fairmont's Enigma is this famous Fairmont mathematician. Fairmont's last theorem. He he um, uh, said, "I have this ingenious solution to this well-known math problem nobody had solved," but nobody ever found his solution. Anyway, people spent 300 years looking for a solution to this problem. And the reason the book, other than it being really well written, hit, struck a chord with me is you think about something like uh, mathematics and how long we've been at it. And you think, well, how much can advance in mathematics? And it turns out that he solves um, uh, Fermat's enigma um, by using four mathematical breakthroughs in the 20th century as part of his proof. Um, and the other thing that's interesting about it is it seems on the surface like it should be a pretty simple problem to solve. And it turns out it's it's super complex. So you can't judge a book by its cover. So anyway, kind of a random one. But uh, yeah, I love that book. Very cool. Yeah, that's a new one. I always like the the new ones. We get like the hard thing about hard things a lot, and uh, which is a fantastic book, but uh, definitely I like new ones. Uh, outside of work, what do you like to do for fun? Um, I uh, play guitar. Your your listeners won't be able to see, but you can see fingernails on my right hand, not on my left. Um, I love all sports. I do a lot of running, um, history and science books I love, and uh, travel, family. So nothing, nothing earth shattering. Very cool. Well, Rick, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through, um, you know, your background story, all the great, you know, companies that you've built and obviously the amazing work that Freight Farms is up to. And of course, all the great advice you've shared along the way. Thanks. I appreciate it. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.